part of your work is working with arguably one of the biggest names in television history, David Attenborough. To be as close and as in touch with nature as you are is something that many of us will never experience, unfortunately. And I realized these penguins had never seen humans before. And they were so curious, they started eyeballing us and then orbiting around us. There was dozens and dozens and dozens of these big, beautiful black and white spaceships with a lovely little yellow-orange eye marking. Uh, and they're just gliding around us. And, it, and you felt like you were in a snow dome, you know, those little snow domes that you shake and all the snowflakes spin around you. And it got closer and closer. And I'm sitting there on the ground and this wolf, an Arctic wolf is a huge animal. And this beautiful, big, white head, like a werewolf, like a snow white werewolf's face is just leaning, is, is above me, leaning down. G'day, g'day. Welcome back to another episode of A Lot To Talk About. It is your boy, the captain of the ship, the man in charge, Bradley J. Driver. Of course, call me Brad. And as always, very excited to be sitting behind the mic. But I've been looking forward to today's chat for a long time. We have a guest who would usually stand behind the camera. Sometimes he's out sharing his stories. Sometimes you'll see his face. But for so long, this man has produced film and TV that we know and love without knowing that he's a big part of the reason it's on air. Now, we're talking about some of the biggest nature and wildlife shows in history with tens of millions of views, probably hundreds of millions of views up until this point. Ladies and gentlemen, from your homey car or wherever you are, give a very warm welcome to the one, the only, Mr. Chad and Hunter. How are you, mate? Thank you, Bradley. What an intro. Mate, you deserve it because for me, it's been a, it's been a real joy discovering who you are as a human and only knowing the surface level stuff, the stuff that I see, but getting to dive into the world that you're in is fascinating. And I think the reason it is so fascinating for so many is to be as close and as in touch with nature as you are, is something that many of us will never experience, unfortunately. And, yeah. you know, I can imagine that you see that as a real privilege and I'm so excited to dive into your story today. And not a part of who you are, but a part of your work is working with arguably one of the biggest names in television history, David Attenborough. And yeah. Sir David Attenborough is someone we've all grown up watching, listening to. I think, funnily enough, with him, his voice is more iconic than his face because we've heard that voice so many times. Now, you've worked alongside a man like that, which is a huge credit to you because what you've produced together is absolutely amazing. And I guess I want to go to where you guys first met, where those first opportunities together come, and then kind of reverse engineer the story and, and pick up the pieces from all over the place. Yeah, well, it's, um, it, it is an interesting story. I, I had never planned for a career in wildlife filmmaking a, at all. I wanted to be a, an academic biologist. Uh, I was always interested in, in nature and, and you know, loved being out there and finding animals and plants. Uh, but I, I assumed that sharing that love of nature, what I loved nothing more than was to, was to share my excitement over finding a beetle in the backyard and showing my parents or you know, explaining to someone how a tree grew. Or, and I realized that trying to share that love of nature was something that I wanted to do moving forward. I, I assumed that would be in a classroom. I assumed I'd be either a, a high school biology teacher or maybe at university as a, you know, a lecture, lecturer talking to a, a group of uni students trying to inspire them, inspire them about nature. Uh, and that, so that led me to doing a PhD on uh, some monkeys in Ethiopia, gelada baboons. 
And I have to kind of give you this bit of the backstory first. I know you wanted to reverse engineer it, but I have to kind of give you that backstory to explain why I was there. So I was up in the Ethiopian highlands studying uh, gelada baboon, not just one, the whole group of gelada baboons. And I was doing my PhD up there when David Attenborough uh, visited the field site with the film crew. This was for a series called Life of Mammals, which is going way back now, over 20 years. And obviously, for me, that was a childhood hero. It wasn't that I wanted to, to work in wildlife films, but I think so many young biologists, wildlife biologists especially, have been inspired by his shows. And a lot of us who have any kind of interest in the natural world have been inspired by Attenborough shows. So for him to rock up in my camp with his film crew was a real, uh, yeah, <clears throat> a real privilege, a real pinch yourself moment. I was still in my 20s then and, uh, you know, scruffy, living living feral up there in the mountains. I think I was wearing Ethiopian robes and living on tinned tuna. I lived in a mud hut and and my only light was candles. I lived by candlelight for three years. So I was I was a real, living like a caveman up there. And so to have a, a BBC film crew rock up and share stories with them and have someone as famous as David actually ask me about the monkeys was really uh, spine tinglingly um, gratifying in a way. He, he wasn't arrogant. He didn't have an ego. He was just fascinated by what I was studying, study, um, fascinated by the monkeys. So to sit there around the campfire and have this this great man to say, really, Chapman, God, you know, tell me some more, tell me some more about the monkeys that I was studying was was a was an amazing experience. But it wasn't. I don't think it was was precisely meeting David that that led of this shift for me away from academia into filmmaking. I think I'd worked with a couple of other film crews up there. National Geographic were one of the first teams up there. They did a, a feature article about my work, and I, I had a I think it was Animal Planet and Discovery and a few other film crews coming through. And each time that a, a documentary crew came past my field site, I just realized that they had a lot of fun in the storytelling. And as a, as a, as a scientist for so many years, I felt like one half of my brain, the scientific side, was that the left or the right? I always get it mixed up, had basically been, been um, on overdrive. And the other half of the brain the creative artistic side had really been shut down from the age of about 15 to 25. And then when I bump into a film crew, I realized that what they're doing in storytelling and the way that they craft the, the visuals and the script and the music and the whole package to present science to an audience, but to actually inspire them and really move people. I thought that the, the artistry in reaching people was really satisfying for me. So that I think it was that that um, exposure to storytelling as a technique, which really was the catalyst that that led me into filmmaking. But yeah, David David Attenborough turning up at my at my uh, camp, obviously was you know was huge. Mate, that's so fascinating to hear, and I'm so glad you you went there into the space of storytelling because that's my longest passion, and probably very similar to you. I think at the age of about sixteen when I left school. I guess the the freedom to tell story, the the structure and the, I guess the gift that you're given through your schooling years of these exercises and tasks that require you to tell stories kind of le left me in many ways. And I'm still a passionate storyteller in, in my life and with my people, but I kind of went away from story and lost, I guess, lost the connection with sharing it. I understood stories. I listened to, watched story, but I lost my personal connection with it. 
And it wasn't until I left my corporate career and dived into this and dived into speaking and, and really sharing my story with others that I got a sense of the fact that this was the longest passion I'd known and felt. And I started to look at how I could use that passion to then serve others, to enrich the lives of others. And, you know, essentially that's that purpose word, right? And, you know, as I think of that and, and mention that there, it makes me question and wonder what you would see as your own purpose and, and how that comes into the work that you do now and the life that you're leading. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's really interesting. You, you know, have come, come across story as well. Um, I think, as I said earlier, like, like ever since I was a kid, I had this, this really deep love and appreciation for nature. And I, I, I remember a moment when I was a little kid where we'd go out and collect insects in the, in the garden, whether it was worms or butterflies or things. And we had a pin board at home in our, in our kitchen where my sister and I and my mother would uh, pin, you know, the insects and things we found. And I remember sitting there at the breakfast one morning watching this, uh, this grub still wriggling under the pin. And I was so upset by it. I just, I remember the, the, the feeling of absolute heartbreak that we brought this caterpillar in, that we, we, we had killed it. And, and it's, it, we had, we had pets all our lives, but I think that that, for me, I had always had a, a slightly deeper empathy for creatures and animals. And, um, you know, I probably wouldn't have had as much empathy for my, my sister at the time and that one little bug, but, you know, I begged my mother to take it, you know, to take it back outside. And I'm sure it didn't live, but we pretended that we took it down to a tree in the park. And, and you know, a month later, oh, we saw a cocoon and my mother pretended, oh, that's probably the, the caterpillar that you released. But that, but that's, I, I think, for, from a, a young age, that love of, of, of animals and, and wild things and wild places, the ability when it, to see it potentially harmed or at danger, I think for me was a, a real motivator. And so I think I always assumed that being able to teach people about it as a biology teacher uh, was the way forward, was the way that I would reach more people and affect more change. And growing up in the 70s, of course, I had no idea of the importance of that. It didn't, it, conservation back then was nowhere near as much in the zeitgeist as it is now. And now we realize that, um, you know, we've done so much damage to the world and the environment in our generation, just this one generation has possibly done more damage to the planet than almost the rest of humanity put together. That's how frightening it is. And, and so I feel like the, you know, for me, that purpose in trying to reach more people trying to, you know, at the burning core for me is a love of nature, but it's about trying to turn that love of nature into messaging and inspiration and hope uh, that, you know, that will move other people. You know, it can't be done just with despair, but I think, um, I, you know, I love making a beautiful nature documentary. It doesn't have to be misery, <clears throat> but I think using that tool and that skill and that beautiful, wonderful job that I'm grateful for using that uh, in a way that inspires other people to care about nature or the environment just that little bit more, you know, that really is the, you know, the deep down is the driver for me. Mate, I love that so much. And, you know, just this morning before we jumped on the interview, I was watching you, you're sort of lecturing storytelling at some sort of conference or event. I'm not sure what it was and I'm not sure how old the clip was or, or how recent it was, but you would, you were speaking about, your your discovery of the power of film and TV and how, you know, I think you mentioned your first PhD and in the baboons you were studying maybe was read by four people yet 
your first television production was seen by, I think it might've been 40 million people, if I'm correct. Yeah. And, and you realizing and having that sort of aha moment that this was a, a vehicle for you to really share that message, that connection to purpose. And, and I love that discovery for you. And it's obviously led to an amazing career. I wonder as you've gone on and you spoke about this lack there of representation of sort of the damage that we're doing to our natural world and the lack of conservation um, content within a lot of the TV of past. And then this new direction that you guys have taken in your work where what you share now is about the marvel of the natural world whilst, you know, bleeding that message in about what we need to do to conserve it. I wonder as you go and as you deliver this message and people see it, hear it, read it, start to understand it, what do you think is the roadblock for people, you know, around getting behind it? Because it quite often feels for people that change is outside of their own control. Do you yeah. get a sense of that when you share this stuff? <clears throat> yeah, absolutely. I think that's that's one of the the big issues at the heart of, of environmentalism is it is it it feels like it is beyond us and the control is beyond us. And I think for a long time there was this concept of uh, the onus being on the individual, and it's a, it's something that has kind of come from a kind of a I don't want to get too political, but a kind of a neoliberal era and especially originating from America, but this onus on the individual has some amazing benefits to it, um, empowering people, but it's also put this, this very useful pressure um, that things like corporations and state governments can get away with uh, you know, not cleaning up their own act because there's so many people who are paranoid about, oh, I've got to do something locally. You know, this, this catchphrase, think globally, act locally, I think is has been a really dangerous catchphrase because so many people get obsessed with recycling at home or doing these little things about, about um, shopping practices. And, and you're right to do it. It's just that I sometimes do an exercise with a classroom or even an audience where I, I talk about how many minutes or hours a year we might spend recycling at home. And we try and calculate, okay, well, how many times do you wash the plastic or fold the newspaper or you know, put stuff in the recycling bin out the front and calculate that amount of hours that we might put into the year when a lot of us know that a lot of it isn't really recycled that well anyway. And then I say, okay, well, so how many minutes did anyone spend writing to their local MP? Or how many minutes did anyone spend on social media, um, you know, tagging a corporation and asking them to change their behavior? And people look around a little bit kind of blank-faced and a lot of people have just never done it in their lives. And I sometimes... I think it's about trying to find ways that people can do things that are more empowering and they are out there. But I think, I think for a long time, there's been this, um, as I said, this this pressure uh, on us at home. And a lot of that, I think it, it I don't want to get, get too dark about it or point the finger, but a lot of uh, corporations are very happy that people are obsessed with, with um, folding up the newspaper at home versus taking them on the whole, you know, the phrase carbon footprint, was actually invented by a, I'm not going to name the company, but but by a big fossil fuel energy company as part of a marketing campaign where they were trying to put more focus and emphasis on individuals. So this whole, what's your carbon footprint question became a very personalized thing. <clears throat> and yet we weren't pointing the finger at the, you know, the fossil fuel companies that came up with the phrase. And I think that social media is, is a very good example. It's one of the most powerful tools that the public have out there. 
and someone I was talking to a, a group recently where we talked about writing a tweet tagging a local coffee shop because they stopped using single-use coffee cups uh, and I tweet I, I, I tweeted this coffee shop and I just said oh thanks guys you know for for stopping to use single-use coffee cups I know you'll lose some business but good on you and someone in the audience is saying, yeah, but I've only got five followers. It's not going to make any impact. But the whole point about social media and the way you can tag people and corporations is that if you say something nice about them and their ecological behavior, then they forward it to all of their customers and it could go to 5,000 or 50,000. And that's the amazing power of, um, of social media is that there's that potential to go viral. Uh, so I always always suggest to people, that, you know, don't get nasty, don't um, you know wave the finger too hard. Not that they don't deserve it, but it's just that it's it's generally negativity generally isn't the better way to change people's behaviour versus something that's positive. Humans are, after all, a very optimistic species. So you've got to find ways that are, I guess, it's more carrot and less stick, if you like. But I think trying to say nice things about companies that are doing better practice, whether it's reducing their use of plastic or whether it's uh, heading towards renewables, a lot of a lot of mainstream um, <clears throat> retail are trying to head in that direction. If you give them a bit more support on social media and they send those messages viral, it really is that kind of that that imaging around uh, corporations. Uh, it, it, it re they all care about it. They really, really care about it. Every single large corporation that I speak to these days has some kind of uh, you know economic social um, <clears throat> ethos uh, that they want to portray, <laughs> and sorry, all of that, all of this kind of talk about how to interact with corporations. Mm. I should have started with saying that the real power lies with corporate behavior and government behavior to some extent, and so instead of individuals feeling helpless at home. Uh, I think if you can somehow get that conversation out to those powers, corporate and political, uh, whether it's through a school petition, whether it's through one social media post, it doesn't have to be much, but if we were all just making one social media post, post about a local corporation and their eco behavior or lack thereof, uh, we, would, we would see massive changes in um, the behavior that did uh, you know, affect the world. For sure. And mate, even just sitting there listening to you talk and I completely agree with what you're saying, but my dumb ass is sitting here with a single use coffee cup sipping away. And it's, and it's these habits that we have because we've, I think awareness and being reminded of that awareness, because there are so much in the landscape of the world we live in right now that needs to change for the betterment of our society and for the longevity of our society whether that be environmental or not. However, there's so much to process that individually we feel that overwhelm. And I think one of the best things is, you know, we spoke about change on a, on a big corporate level, change on a, a larger scale. You know, remember when like Woolworths ruled the plastic bag out of use and we're like, we're going to use these recyclable bags. Now, I don't know the, the science behind it. I'm not sure how positive that effect or change has been. Everyone kicks up a stink for five minutes because they're like, we're not going to remember to bring our yeah. bags. But then if you change it, people have to adjust. Yeah. And as society, we do adjust and we get used to it. And now that's the new normal. And when yeah. I see a plastic bag, I go, it's kind of weird, isn't it? 
Yeah, yeah, like, exactly. Absolutely. What's one of those things doing? Yeah. I make the same comment about plastic, a plastic straw in a drink. You know, if, if I was in a bar 10 years ago and there's a plastic straw in my gin and tonic, I wouldn't have thought twice about it. And here I am, I'm a you know, wildlife biologist. And yet now someone serves me a drink with a plastic straw in it. I'm like, oh my God, where are the cameras? I'm going to hell, I'm going to hell. Yeah. And that, you're right, that, that ability for humans to change really quickly is something you've, you've got to hold on to where like you know the world is in a bit of a messy state right now and it's um you know there's a lot of grim headlines uh but do remember that that you know bad news generally sells better than good news so if you pay a lot of attention to the news it feels a little bit overwhelming uh but if you go out to your community i mean i think you're right Bradley, about the kind of the the isolation of individual of our individual lives and sometimes feeling a bit helpless because there's us there's an echo chamber of news in our social media feeds a lot of it's bad it's kind of what do you do you know i think a lot of people that get together in groups find find that comforting even having a conversation like this it's it's one-on-one -on -one. but even um you know whether it's it's i remember after after blue planet after we made that at the bbc blue planet 2 uh in the uk the number of beach cleaning community groups skyrocketed they had thousands and thousands of people going out to collect rubbish on the beach and at the time i remember thinking well okay guys you know you'll clean up one day and, and all of that plastic will just wash across from china in a week's time anyway but it wasn't so much it wasn't so much the actual physical data of the exact number of grams of plastic they were, they were picking up it was the symbolism of getting together, it was the empowerment they felt about realizing there are other people in their community that cared. And I think that was something that was massively empowering. We've gone through decades of this, oh, you're all individuals, you know, you've got to do it individually. And all of a sudden we had just one TV show that inspired people to get together on a beach with strangers, um, 30, 40, 50 people, and all realized that, wow, we're all, we're all doing this together. And so I think it's, it's, um, yeah, sometimes, uh, you know, those kind of grassroots movements have to come from the grassroots, the community, people who aren't experts, who don't really have particular skills, but are just, they're just fed up and, and want to go and change something. Uh, I mean, you know, plastics is one thing. I think our, you know, our, our kind of acceptance that, that, you know, we're trying to use less single-use plastics across the board is now ingrained. I think things like fossil fuels is another one where, you know, for a long time, we might have had a debate about whether our kids or grandkids will be using fossil fuel cars. But right now, <clears throat> you could go into any petrol oil company on the planet and look the CEO in the eye, and they would not deny that their grandkids will not be driving fossil fuel cars. Every single fossil fuel company around the planet accepts that we are heading away from fossil fuels eventually. It's a bit of a two steps forward, one step back process at the moment. But that acceptance has happened within about a decade. And so you have to hold on to some of those hopeful stories um, that, you know, there's a lot of, uh, you know, grim things out there, overfishing, habitat destruction, the climate change that we're battling with. But humans, when we do put our minds together and we do kind of make that, that fill up in the head, I mean, as you said, Brad, like the, the, the kind of acceptance that we don't really get tons and tons of plastic bags at the supermarket anymore is a perfect example. Like now we kind of can't even remember that era. So those moments do come along. Um, you know, humans as a species, it's it's very hard because as, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a great ape, we have this kind of slight short-term 
mentality about looking after our family, our meal, our resources, this kind of this little scramble that oh, if, if I can just get ahead, then everything will be okay. <clears throat> and it's sometimes harder to connect with that bigger community with our with our you know our fellow apes around us and realize that there's a group of apes that we want to kind of look after. Um, so yeah, but as I said, it, it, it's it's through hopeful stories and through connecting with other humans that we realize that you know we do have more empowerment to, to change things for the better. Yeah, beautifully said. I want to dive into just some of the stories and and moments within your quest, your journey that excite and thrill you. Um, it, it comes to mind the movie The Secret Life of Walter Mitty. I'm not sure if you've seen that film. However, great film. There's a moment from the film that I love where he's actually sitting, I, I believe it's in the snow fields and there's something... I think it's like a, a snow leopard or something like that in the movie. I can't quite remember the animal, but he's got the camera out and he's sitting next to this photographer and the photographer just drops the camera and says, some moments you need to just watch and be present and be in the moment. And he'd be, he'd be fired. What was that? Sorry. He'd be fired. Yeah. He'd be, he'd be <laughs> fired for sure. And David wouldn't put up with that, surely. Exactly, yeah. And I think about that moment, I think, do you ever get a chance to put the camera down or is the camera always on? And how do you separate being in work mode from being present and, and enjoying that experience for you? Yeah, yeah. I'd say, I'm, I'm really glad you asked that. It's a really wonderful question. Because uh, I, I mean, I'm not, a, I'm not a cameraman, camera operator by profession. I'm, I'm a director, producer. Uh, so the camera is a bit of a hobby for me. But I do love taking stills, and so I'm always taking photos of whether it's whether it's the family or whether it's it's holidays or trips, and it drives my wife nuts sometimes. Um, and I remember us uh, we were we were trekking in Sumatra, uh, my wife and I before our kids, and and we were we were trekking to try and find orangutans, wild orangutans, and it was the most amazing adventure. You know, we're sleeping in the rainforest with guides and and wandering around. We found this mother and baby orangutan absolutely beautiful i mean the, the the brightness of the orange of their fur is is startling when you see them for the first time in the wild and this little baby orangutan just had this incredible kind of electrified mop of orange hair and was hanging upside down and then to see a wild orangutan was it was was such a you know an incredible um once in a lifetime moment and there i was just snapping and snapping and snapping and my wife was watching them soaking it in and just saying afterwards like God, don't you just want to put the camera down sometimes and, and enjoy them? And I think for me, I do get the exact same enjoyment, but I but in somehow using that that prism of the camera as a way of of soaking it up, um, I, I I'm enjoying it in, in the same way. You know, for me, for me, mm. kind of getting those photos and getting that angle and seeing the baby's face, and sometimes I I, I find that wildlife film crews and wildlife photographers actually often see things to a, a granular level that a lot of people aren't seeing it. I mean, I've been out there with a lot of uh, wildlife biologists in the field. And at the end of the day, I we'll say, God, did you see how the uh, the meerkats did that weird scratching thing where they kind of lean to the one beside them type thing? And the scientists would be like, what are you talking about? I haven't seen that. And, the, and in some senses, the the scrutiny that that you're paying to the natural world as a filmmaker, the attention that you're paying to working out when that snow leopard's head is going to appear around the rock or working out whether that is the the feces of a polar bear or 
whether you can actually smell the zebra coming. There is actually, I would argue, a, a slightly heightened awareness about nature because of that job. And I think that's part of the buzz that wildlife filmmakers get. It's a little bit like, sometimes it, it, it almost feels like um, the buzz that, that a hunter would get, an assassin, someone that, that is lining out. Like you spend your entire day trying to outwit the animals, trying to make them unaware of your presence, trying to get as close as you can to get that shot off. Now, there are people out there, a big game hunter who, who might pull the trigger and kill something. But of course, for us, it's pulling the trigger and capturing an image that we can then share with the world. So I feel like, uh, yeah, there, there are days when I kind of, you know, one of the most beautiful spiritual things that I ever get to do in my life is go for a bushwalk on my own. I don't get to do it much these days. We've got three kids, but but that that being able to walk in nature, even on a track somewhere in the bush on your own, for me, is about the closest I get to a spiritual experience. And you know, I don't take a camera, but I just I just love going for a bushwalk. But the the actual job of wildlife filmmaking has a real, real heightened buzz to it because you're trying to get under the skin of nature um, to another level. I mean, to try and track a snow leopard and find a snow leopard in the Himalayas, uh, you know, is a phenomenally exciting and satisfying experience. And sure, I could join a, a tour group and go and, and a tour guide finds the snow leopard, points to it, and I can admire it and not pull my camera out. But you see what I mean? It's like like pulling the camera out isn't exactly the thing that's getting in the way of me enjoying nature. It's more the kind of the the uh, the Buddhist like attention to the moment that you pay. Mm. You know, it's interesting you say that because I, I probably would say I didn't expect that response. But what I think is beautiful about your response is it makes me think about passion and why it's so important that people pursue things in life that they're incredibly passionate about because when work is your passion, well, then you're present in it. There's no need or desire to escape. I think for most people pulling out the camera or the phone is a form of um, potentially capturing that moment to then post it for validation. For you, it's a pure passion of experiencing that moment in its fullest and capturing that image for your own enjoyment, for your own pleasure. And then, you know, you're in a great job where the rest of the world gets to enjoy it too. And whether that be, you know, the way that you direct an image, the way that you direct a moment on, I guess, on set in the natural world, uh, you know, that speaks to the power of purpose. I love that so much and the power of that passion. There's a question that comes to mind. Like I said, this world that you live in is so outside of my level of understanding you know, I'm, I live in an apartment block, I've got a beautiful park across me and I've got an amazing little Jack Russell puppy. And, you know, I, I love nature, but I don't live in it the way that you live in it. And I remember listening to arguably one of my favorite episodes of a podcast ever, um, a guy named Boyd Vardy. I'm not sure if you've heard of Boyd, lion tracker in South Africa, tracks lions for conservation and for safari tours. And he was speaking about, you know, firstly, learning to track um, via a traditional tracker who was a part of one of the tribes there in South Africa. And he spoke about the thing he loved most about nature was its intention is always honest. When a leopard or a lion or a hippo is charging at you, you know its intention. Mm. When it is peacefully sitting, enjoying the moment and you know, you're at a distance, you understand its intention, it's so honest. And he said, human beings don't quite have the same honest intentions that nature do. 
I wonder with all the time you spent in the natural world, what have you learned from nature and what have you learned from wildlife that you've taken on as lessons as a human being and the way that you live your life and the way that you go about your day? Oh, wow. <clears throat> that is a tricky one. Um, I mean, I guess, yeah, there's a, there is a, you're right, there is an honesty to the way that nature gets about. But then you get up into the kind of the more intelligent monkeys and there is levels of, um, I guess, deceit and trickery there. You, are, I mean, I did my PhD on baboons and I'll tell you what, if one, if one little baboon had dug up the mother load of roots that he didn't want to share, he might be looking over his shoulder to pretend to his siblings that he hadn't found anything. So the um, yeah, the humans have taken it to a whole nother level, that, that kind of um, trickery and mind games and, and the way we kind of, yeah, play games with each other compared to nature. Uh, I mean, I think, I think partly spending time in nature gives you a chance to learn patience. Uh, it certainly it, it certainly allows you to become comfortable in your own company. Uh, and I think certainly in terms of seeing things in the bigger picture, that's something that I, I, I think, uh, you know, all through life we're faced with with day-to-day -day frustrations. And I think it's that, it, it's an old adage of, of, you know, not sweating the small stuff. And I think that um, you know, there's lots of different people that try to teach that lesson in a lot of different ways, whether it's, you know, from a, from a yoga class to a, to a schoolroom or something. But I think, I, I think for me getting out in nature or, you know, watching a sunset or watching animals play or, or some, I mean, that kind of has, reminds me of, uh, sometimes the pettiness of what might upset me within one day. And it's not it's not always foolproof. I mean, I you know I kind of get get frustrated and, and fed up with you know like everyone else. But um, but I think yeah, if there's one lesson, I guess it, it's just a, a slight a slight patience with life. I mean, you'll generally always look back on on a hard day, uh, you know, and either laugh or realize you got through it. But I think sometimes we do kind of get get um, you know wrapped up in uh, you know a funk. As a, as a human in a mood um, and, and certainly spending time with nature, I think gives you that reflection of, okay, well, there's a much bigger picture here. There's a whole, a planet of interconnected beings and humans and, and other things going on that, um, you know, I think is, it's always worthwhile us remembering, you know, that we're molecules part of this bigger galaxy. Mm, I, I love that, mate. And, you know, I, I think about the life that you're living, you know, the moments you've had, the moments that are to come. And there's a quote that sits at the front of my mind consistently when I think about my life and the life that I'm living. And it's um, a Tyson Fury quote, the boxer. And he spoke about on Mike Tyson's podcast. In fact, he spoke about how in the end, you know, when you've, you know, for a guy like that, who's had the money, the fame, the fortune, and has had the ups and downs of mental health and, you know, struggle in his life. He spoke about the realization that in the end, all we have are moments in time. Like you can't take the cars with you. You can't take the houses with you, but you know, you take the memories to the grave and they're the things that you think about. And it, it makes you feel either fulfilled or like life has somewhat been wasted and you have a sense of regret. I can imagine, I don't want to speak for you that you feel very fulfilled about your moments in time. And I wonder if there's maybe one or two moments that stand out to you at the top of the pack, aside from the obvious of, you know, being a father and being a husband, 
those moments in nature and, and maybe it's experiences with those really close people in your life. But is there anything that really stands out as, as one that in your final days, in your final moments, you'll look back on and go, bloody hell, I'm glad I experienced that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's a, how long have you got? <laughs> I'm, I'm very, I'm very lucky. I'm very lucky that I do a job, which is my day job is basically a lot of people's bucket list. And so I'm lucky enough to sit out there in a safari Jeep um, and sometimes get a bit bored with waiting for the lion to do something. And, you know, I'm, I'm losing connection with that gratitude. And then all of a sudden the safari Jeep will pull up beside you with a family who have spent their, their life savings to come on this one week safari. And they are so buzzed and so excited about every second of that safari. And you realize that will be the one time they do it in their life. And you talk to them for a few minutes and all of a sudden you just, you're just covered in goosebumps because you're like, wow, okay. Okay. Just, just pay attention. Your, your job is, is incredible. Uh, but I really think there's a few, uh, there's one moment that was, that was quite surreal for me, which was, which was, um, uh, a, a quite alien experience. It's like, it's when we go scuba diving underneath the Antarctic ice cap, it's the frozen Antarctic sea ice. And we drill a manhole through the ice. It's about two meters deep, the ice. And you, you drop down through that hole. And the water, because not much light gets down there, is so free of organic life that it is crystal, crystal clear. And the visibility is immense. You can see over 200 meters. Now, for anybody who does scuba diving, you, you, you realize that, that, that to be able to see 200 meters underwater is just a phenomenal experience. It feels like you're in space. And I remember dropping down and we could see the, the slope of the, uh, the slope of Antarctica disappearing down into the inky blackness, but down to 200 meters depth. And above your head is this white ceiling. And you can see that to the horizon and you can see it a long way. So it feels like uh, the surface of a planet. So you've got this bright white surface of a planet and you're feeling like a, an astronaut on a spacewalk because you're there floatless on your scuba dive and there's inky black, inky blue to black beneath you. And I remember looking at these uh, little specks in the water that I thought were little bits of dust or debris around my fingertips. So I was holding my fingertips up thinking, oh, they around, are they around about a meter away? And then I realized that they were far, far below me and there were specks that were getting bigger and bigger. And there were emperor penguins coming up from the depths. And these emperor penguins had been diving to down to 500 meters depth which is incredible for a bird to think that they go down for 20 meters 20 minutes to half a kilometer's depth in pitch blackness to go fishing to think that's a bird doing that and this bird coming up and the emperor penguin is, is the world's biggest penguin they're 40 kilograms they're big like a big meter long beautiful torpedo barrel and they came up from the depths and as they got closer to us, obviously they're getting bigger and bigger and things underwater appear bigger anyway. So they look like these immense torpedoes, spaceships. And I realized these penguins had never seen humans before. And they were so curious, they started eyeballing us and then orbiting around us. There was dozens and dozens and dozens of these big, beautiful black and white spaceships with a lovely little yellow orange eye marking. Uh, and they're just gliding around us. And you felt like you were in a snow dome, you know, those little snow domes that you shake. <laughs> And all the snowflakes spin around you. So you have this kind of this surface of this alien planet above our heads, the white, and then space, inky space all around us. And just dozens and dozens and dozens of these big, beautiful spaceships orbiting around us, checking us out. And, and that moment, I just remember thinking, 
oh my God, someone pays me to do this? Yeah. <laughs> it was just a real pinch yourself moment. Like, of course, you can't pinch yourself through a wetsuit, but a dry suit. But um, yeah, that moment will, will really stick with me as a, as a, as a real otherworldly experience. Mate, do you feel um, emotional in the moment there? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you're kind of completely tingling. I mean, it really is. It, it's it's special. It really is one of those moments where, you know, your soul is connecting to the universe, um, you know, in a way that might happen to each, each of us a couple of times in our lives. Mm, mate, that just hearing that makes me smile. Like, yeah. what a story. There's another, there's another moment that... Um, uh, I haven't thought about it for a while, but it, it was um, it was actually up in the Arctic this time, and I was out wandering on the tundra on my own, middle of nowhere, you know, as flat as a flat as a pancake to the horizon. And I remember seeing a an Arctic wolf on the horizon, and they're they're snow white, so really stand out, uh, bright white. And through the binoculars, I saw it sniffing the air and lining up at me. And it just started trotting and trotting. This might be about five kilometers away and it's trotting directly at me. And I, thought, and I know it smelt me. And so I'm like, wow, okay. So I'm like, okay, stay calm. As a biologist, I know that wolves won't hurt you. Wolves don't hurt people. That's in the fairy tales. Uh, it's a naive wolf, means it's never seen humans. It will not hurt you. It's just curious. And it didn't matter how much I knew this about wolf behavior, your, your heart is still pounding. And I walked a little bit and it didn't, I didn't, there's nowhere to walk to. I was on my own. There's nothing there. And this wolf was just getting, uh, was kind of running towards me. There's snow geese flying out of the way and it was running. And I watched it through binoculars, two kilometers, one kilometer. And it came up over this little rise. And I, I eventually sat down with my back against a rock um, thinking, and my heart is just like pounding. And I'm thinking, okay, it's not going to do anything. It's not going to do anything. And I, and I pulled my, my, phone or a little point and shoot camera out of my pocket and held it against my chest to just hit record and I just want this this wolf kind of walk closer and closer and as it got closer to me it started zigzagging to catch my scent like it would look at me it would go one way sniff kind of do a zag, zigzag zigzag and it got closer and closer and I'm sitting there on the ground and this wolf an arctic wolf is huge animal and this beautiful big white head like a werewolf like a snow white werewolf's face is just leaning is, is above me leaning down and it's just kind of looking at me having no idea what i was it had never seen a human it's out there trying to hunt geese or something and it sniffed my boots and just looked at me and then kind of just trotted off across the horizon wow and as an encounter it was it was just staggering um and i knew that a wolf would never harm me but but the uh the, the visceral instinctual feeling that's hardwired as a human that um wow am i in danger you know i still had to overcome that with my my knowledge but, for sure um, do you still have that footage i i i i'm not sure i own it that's the problem okay yeah. <laughs> as a bbc employee it's probably somewhere in the making of sort of frozen planet one or something but um mate if you I ever come I, across it fl like flick me a link to that because incredible I think I've, I've probably got a still image or something that I can share of the wolf. Yeah, mate. Amazing. Mate, I listen to that and I think what a rich life you've had thus far. And I, I'm so confident you're going to continue to have these rich moments and just incredible things for yourself to to reflect back on and be really proud of the fact that you've, you followed purpose, you followed passion in your life. And 
I think that's an incredible message for anyone listening to the podcast here today to to do that within their own life. I know you have to go very soon. I want to ask one final question. Yeah, sure. More of a novelty question because this yeah. just interests me now that we've been speaking about wildlife. Yeah. I wonder, I'm not sure what your spiritual or religious beliefs are, but let's just say you come to the end of your life and you realize that the opportunity for reincarnation was there and you were given the choice. You can reincarnate as any creature on the planet and live out your last lifetime as that creature? What creature would you live as for the second well, time? Uh, um, good question. Uh, well, I mean, I think I'd have to pick an apex predator <laughs> because <laughs> no matter what habitat you're in or what ecosystem you're in, wouldn't it be nice to just be cruising around realizing that nothing could hurt you? Uh, sure. Everything, Everything below the apex predator has to keep one eye over its shoulder uh but perhaps something like an eagle i mean i think the the ability to 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 live on the wing uh i've always loved mountains to you know imagine kind of you know nesting on some beautiful cliff edge and, and not have vertigo to to spend 80 percent of your day out there just 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 soaring around a lot of those big birds you know albatross and things sleep on the wing which is kind of an amazing thought um, and just you know to have that eyesight too, you know, an eagle's eyesight is phenomenal. It's a bit like it's a bit like having Google Earth up there. Um, but yeah, scared of nothing in the mountains on the wing, you know, perhaps an eagle would be it. Mate, I absolutely love it. Thank you so much for your time. I'm I'm so excited by sitting here and listening to you tell story. And you are such an incredible storyteller. You're also an incredible producer and filmmaker. And you know, I've had the privilege for so long you know, sitting on the lounge, watching stuff that you've made without knowing the man behind it. I feel very privileged to have met the man behind it. So thank you so much for being a part of the show's fabric now and a lot to talk about. I'll make sure that, you know, the links to everything you're doing is within the show description so people can continue to interact because I can't possibly imagine someone listening to or watching this episode and, and not wanting to go and interact further and see more of what you're doing. So thank you so much for your time, Chad. Oh, thank you, Bradley. It was a joy. Great fun talking to you. Cheers, mate. Thanks a lot. Cheers. <laughs>